Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tonight on The Readout. We don't want you to speak about the case, the case. Sir, would like to talk to you about your case. Or, or, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Somehow that's not good for votes. Do you agree? When we say I can't talk, I'd love to, t- I will talk about it. I will. They're not taking away my First Amendment. Right. Donald Trump claimed earlier this week that no one is going to stop him from speaking about his criminal case. But today, Judge Tanya Chutkin laid down the law and told Trump's lawyer that Trump's words will have consequences. And the First Amendment is not absolute. Plus, Attorney General Merrick Garland appoints a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden. And Republicans are predictably complaining about it after spending months demanding exactly that. And good evening, everyone. Happy Friday. Tonight was a big night for Donald Trump, who discovered that after all, at least to the criminal justice system, he is no different from anyone else. Despite his fame and political prominence, he he can't just publicly abuse witnesses because he's on the campaign trail. The judge who taught him that lesson today is named Tanya Chutkin. I have a bunch more to say on her in just a bit, but we begin the readout tonight with something along those same lines. And it is the truism that sometimes things are not as they seem, even when they involve Hollywood stars and former president. For example, today in Hollywood, actors and writers continue to walk the picket line, still unable to reach an agreement with the studios and producers like Netflix. A reminder that while our perception is that Hollywood is this glamorous place where all the actors and writers are fabulously rich, For the vast majority of them, that isn't true at all. Artifice is a big part of Hollywood, making you believe things that aren't real. The same is often true in politics. The Washington Post reports this week that Tommy Tuberville, the Alabama senator currently holding up all U.S. military promotions due to his opposition to abortion, including leaving both the Army and the Marines leaderless, and whose obstruction appears to have cost Alabama the headquarters of Space Command, which will now remain in Colorado, reportedly doesn't even live in Alabama. The Post used financial records to confirm that the senator actually lives in Florida. His wife has a Florida real estate license even, and he hasn't hasn't actually lived in the state that he represents for years. They even included a link to this video in which Tuberville says that after retiring as a football coach, he moved to Florida. But Tuberville got elected to the Senate not because he was a good politician or had great ideas. He got elected because he was a famous football coach who used to coach at Auburn University in Alabama. So Alabama Republicans gleefully replaced actual civil rights hero and one-term Democratic Senator Doug Jones with Tuberville. Because it just, it just sounded right to them, right? Auburn coach becomes Alabama senator. And if his voters don't like the fact that he doesn't actually live there, well, they're out of luck until 2026 when he is up for re-election. Tuberville, of course, is not the only interesting character living in Florida. Roger Stone, the Proud Boys, Michael Flynn, Javanka, and of course, Donald Trump lived there too. 
Trump moved to Florida after he became president, after building a career in New York that convinced most people that he was a successful real estate billionaire. So powerful was that myth that he landed The Apprentice, which turned him into a celebrity. And then he became president of the United States. Same formula as how Tuberville became a senator. And and I just don't think that people think enough about how much the artifice that got him here is why it is so hard for people who support Trump, and even some who don't really, to believe that he committed crimes, even when the evidence says that he absolutely totally did. People enjoy believing in Hollywood mythology and worshiping the rich and famous. It is endemic to American culture. Remember the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? It was a huge hit, just like The Apprentice was. And for a lot of people who look up to Trump as a rich celebrity they idolize, it is just easier to believe that he wouldn't commit crimes because he wouldn't have to. He's just being set up by his enemies. And while the actual facts say no, Joe Biden did beat celebrity president Donald Trump. The idea that Trump really won just seems more believable to a lot of fellow Americans. The famous guy winning just makes more sense to them. And Trump has used that perception of himself to grow his support into something more than fandom. He's used his celebrity to grow himself a religious cult. And he's using his superfans' ardent support to try to build a wall around himself that he hopes will keep him out of prison. Because all he needs is one superfan on his juries to throw the government's case against him. All he needs is just one friendly judge. Hey, Florida. He just needs one juror who believes that all celebrities are rich and rich celebrities don't commit crimes. But what if America in next year's election once again chooses the real politician over the celebrity? I mean, it is likely to happen. A poll roundup by political strategist Simon Rosenberg shows a consistent three to four point lead for Biden. It's an outcome that could trigger a replay of 2020 all over again if Trump goads his supporters with the big lie 2.0. We also have to consider the flip side. What if he wins? Let's just entertain this frightening hypothetical for a moment, that it's November 2024 and Trump is declared the winner of the election. Nightmare scenario, I know. But what if Democrats, Democrats in key states, object to certifying his electors based on the 14th Amendment? It's a question two constitutional scholars tackled for more than a year. And then they spoke to The New York Times These are conservative scholars, I should add, who are active members of the Federalist Society, the conservative legal group, and proponents of originalism, the method of interpretation that seeks to determine the Constitution's original meaning. One of those professors, William Boddy, summarized their conclusion, saying, quote, Donald Trump cannot be president, cannot run for president, cannot become president, cannot hold office unless two-thirds of Congress decides to grant him amnesty for his conduct on January 6th. This is based on a little-known provision of the 14th Amendment, which bars people who have engaged in an insurrection from holding government office. The intent was to prevent the president from allowing former leaders of the Confederacy to regain power within the U.S. government. Congress can remove the prohibition, the provision says, but only by a two-thirds vote in each house. Now, of course, these findings don't change the fact that Trump supporters are determined to elect him again. But they will boost, they will help boost these lawsuits that could be filed, arguing that Trump is indeed ineligible to be president. Professor Michael Stokes Paulson, the second scholar, said, quote, there are many ways that this could become a lawsuit 
presenting a vital constitutional issue that potentially the Supreme Court would want to hear and decide. Joining me now is Lawrence Tribe, who has taught constitutional law at Harvard Law School for five decades. Uh, it's great to see Professor Tribe. I, I am officially obsessed with this uh, scholarship by these Federalist Society judges that I don't normally say that. But what's fascinating about it is that what they're saying is that it is unquestionably fair to say that Donald Trump, this is what they're saying, engaged in the January 6th insurrection through both his actions and his inaction. And therefore, they say that under Article, under the 14th Amendment's Article 3, he cannot be, even in some cases, added to the ballot to be president of the United States. And people can sue over that and make that claim. What do you make of their argument? Well, I think that there's a great deal to be said for it. You don't have to be an originalist, somebody who thinks that the Constitution's meaning has to be excavated from the history and what people understood it meant at the time. In this case, it's simply the straight up language. 14th Amendment, Section 3 says that anybody who takes an oath to uphold the Constitution and thereafter engages in or gives aid and comfort to an insurrection cannot hold any office under the United States, period. Now, back in, I think it was the spring of last year, Judge Michael Ludig, a distinguished conservative, and I both wrote that we thought those words meant exactly what they said. A lot of people have said, oh, no, um, you have to take them in light of an 1869 decision rendered by Chief Justice Chase in a case called In Ray Griffin. Well, these two scholars do a terrific job of shredding that circuit court opinion by one Supreme Court justice. So what is left? Well, what's left is a kind of practical argument. Some people say that provision can't be self-executing. It can't just rise up out of the ashes and grab politicians and say, sorry, you were an insurrectionist, you can't run. There has to be implementing legislation under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. But there's nothing in there that suggests that you need new legislation. And anyway, all 50 states have laws called quo warranto laws, laws where you can ask, by what warrant do you hold this office? And the only modern decision applying this language used that law or something just like it in New Mexico to say that a county commissioner who had actually taken part in the insurrection, though he hadn't been convicted of any insurrection crime, only of trespass, couldn't hold his office. Now, an appeals court never ruled on that because the case became moot. He, he lost an election. But I would imagine that whenever Donald Trump tries to run in any particular jurisdiction, the secretary of state of that jurisdiction, whether on the basis of this article or a little more obviously on the basis of, you know, this little pamphlet, the Constitution of the United States, <laughs> just read it and say, wait a minute, you can't you can't run. Now, he will say I was never convicted of insurrection. I was only convicted in the District of Columbia under the indictment brought under other laws by Jack Smith. I'm assuming perhaps he will have been convicted before the election. Right. But it is clear you don't have to be convicted of insurrection in order to be disqualified. 
Now, when Michael Stokes Paulson says, I think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be eager to rule on this, I, I beg to differ. I don't know about that. You know, they could easily duck. Uh, lower yeah. courts could say, as a matter of real politic, we're not going to take this old language. We may be originalists when it comes to other things, but, <laughs> you know, here we're, we're going to find a way out. So I'm not sure what's going to happen, but it is clearly a major issue overhanging any possible Trump presidency. And yeah. I think it's a major political issue going forward. You know, the thing is, that what's fascinating is that there have already been two cases that have been brought, lawsuits against Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene on this exact basis in North Carolina and in Georgia. Uh, in Marjorie Taylor Greene's case, she escaped with a victory in that case. But in Cawthorn's case, it seemed to get further, but it was also made moot because he lost. And, and here's what's so odd about this whole world that we live in now. If this went to the Supreme Court, sitting on that court is Clarence Thomas, who seems to be, as Chris Hayes said so brilliantly last night, uh, a kept man by very rich uh, right-wing interests, and whose wife is also an insurrectionist. She was in touch with Eastman. She was sending emails trying to get the insurrection going. So the Supreme Court would be in its most awkward position ever if Clarence Thomas had to be one of the people ruling on whether Donald Trump was equal to his wife. Pretty awkward. I mean, it really <laughs> does suggest it suggests that the only way out of this forest is right through the trees for the electorate of the United States to decide we do not want this chaos. We don't want this would-be dictator who tried to hold on to power, even though he had lost the election. We don't want him in office because once he's there, it's only his life expectancy that will ever lead him to leave. Um, and if he is defeated, yes, he might try again to find some way of grabbing onto power, but there's a big difference. This time, he's not going to be commander-in-chief of the military. He's not going to have the Secret Service trying to hold him in power. He's going to be an outsider trying to get in, and I don't think that's going to work. But we can expect chaos. And he is certainly trying in this trial uh, to win through chaos. He's basically saying, you tell me that I can't name the witnesses, that I can't indirectly scare them. Just watch me. And Judge Chutkin is pretty serious. She said, no, you watch me. The more <laughs> you try to make a carnival out of this and the more you violate my rules which are standard rules about not being able to disclose sensitive material like witness transcripts, the faster I'm going to get this trial going. I'm going to take your right to speedy trial even more seriously. And that puts him in quite a bind. That is, he wants to win in the court of public opinion. He hopes to get that one juror that will despite the fact that he doesn't really have any obvious defenses, legal or factual, that will just say, I, I don't think this celebrity could, could possibly be guilty. <laughs> I think he's yeah. probably realistic enough to know that that's less likely to happen. What he really wants is to delay, delay, yeah. delay. He may succeed that's in right. doing yeah. that in Florida, but not in the District of Columbia, not with Judge Chutkin. Mm -hmm.
Not at all. And listen, and in Georgia, if he's convicted, as we I recently found out, uh, he cannot be pardoned automatically by the governor. It's a commission and the governor can't do it. So even Kemp couldn't save him and it won't happen in New York. Lawrence Tribe, uh, it's been a treat. Thank you so much. Always great to talk with you. And you've set us up perfectly for our next our next segment. Thank you very much, sir, because up next on The Readout, the no-nonsense judge that we just were talking about in Trump's January 6th case warns him about what he can and cannot say, as uh, Professor Tribe was just saying, without landing himself in even hotter water. As the DOJ prepares to turn over more than 11 million pages of evidence. The Readout continues after this. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgart, Fgartigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash MOA. Brought to you by Argenics. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. If there was a clear takeaway from today's dramatic hearing over the protective order in Donald Trump's 2020 election interference case, it's that U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin is living up to her reputation as a no-nonsense judge and that she is clearly running the show. While she sided with the defense that the special counsel's protective order request was too broad and that it should only apply to sensitive material, she included the witness interview transcripts, which Trump wanted to be able to make public as sensitive. She made it clear that she was going to give Trump the same rights as she would any other citizen, no more, no less, regardless of his status as a political candidate. She said, quote, Mr. Trump, like every American, has a First Amendment right to free speech, but that right is not absolute. And when Trump lawyers argued that Trump should be given special treatment because he was a political camp, he has a political campaign to think about and that the witness testimonies like from his former vice president, Mike Pence, could become a political issue. The judge's response was, quote, he's a criminal defendant. He's going to have restrictions like every single other defendant, unquote. And before closing the hearing, she issued a stern warning to Trump and his team to avoid public statements that could intimidate witnesses prejudice potential jurors or otherwise create a carnival atmosphere around the case, adding even arguably ambiguous statements by the parties or their counsel, if they could be reasonably interpreted to intimidate witnesses or to prejudice potential jurors can threaten the process. If that happens, she said, she would take whatever measures are necessary to safeguard the integrity of these proceedings, including moving up the trial date. 
Joining me now is Mary McCord, former principal deputy assistant attorney general and MSNBC legal analyst. Reading the notes, Mary, uh, of this hearing, I was like, oh, don't play with Judge Chutkin. Uh, all of her responses were very blunt, succinct and, and definitive. But that last part, I think, is important because she seemed to be saying, if you play with me, I'm going to make this trial earlier. And what the Trump team wants is for the trial to be as late as possible. Is that how you read it? Absolutely. She says in many ways, you know, the more inflammatory statements there are before trial, the more urgency we have to get to trial. And that's directly related to the type of rhetoric and inflammatory statements we've already been hearing from Mr. Trump. You know, those have a direct impact on his base. They cause people to take actions. We did just see, you know, an attempted attack on uh, President Biden in Salt Lake City just two days ago, or maybe it was yesterday. I'm losing track of time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, those I think she's she's recognizing the threat. Her other rulings, you know, uh, being uh, not as expansive as what the government asked, but being very clear that sensitive materials include any witness transcripts, witness statements, et cetera, making clear that Mr. Trump, although he can have access to that, can't write down any personally identifying information, can't have access to any recording devices. I mean, she's really treating him very much frankly, like she doesn't trust him. But th <laughs> these are conditions you would put on somebody when you are worried about witness security. And she's worried about witness security. My favorite part of that about him not being able to, uh, you know, his notes need to be reviewed by his counsel if he takes notes after reviewing things, that the lawyer doesn't have to be in the same room with him, but then they have to review his notes. Um, and then she says he has a history of being in possession of things he shouldn't. <laughs> it's like right. oop reference to the to the Florida case. Um, this is one of uh, things that Judge Chutkin said to Loro, uh, attorney Loro, that he's conflict. You're conflating what your client needs to do to defend defend himself and what your client wants to do politically. Your client's defense is supposed to happen in this courtroom, not on the internet. And that is making your point, Mary, that what he wants to do is go out and say, Mike Pence doesn't have the courage. He didn't have the courage and, and continue to attack him. And then Mike Pence testifies. And there are other witnesses who don't have Secret Service who he can intimidate too. When he says, I'm going after, if you come after me, I'm going after you. That seems like that was meant to be witness intimidation. If Trump does it anyway, I understand that in theory, if he was a regular person, jail could be an option. Is jail an option here? I mean, it, it certainly is an option in terms of if he violates conditions of release. And she did explicitly make a statement about if, you know, some statements could end up violating conditions of relief and release. And she's prepared to take actions she thinks would be necessary to violate those. I think that um, jailing him pre-trial would be a last ditch uh, remedy. I think there are intermediate steps before that. Uh, there could be things, for example, like um, you may not post anything on social media without clearing it through your counsel, uh, something like that. Uh, if it, if that was then violated, she could escalate that up to clearing it through the court. I mean, you know, these things kind of uh, are, are big measures, but they're certainly short of detaining someone, you know, in a jail pre-trial. Um, and it's yeah. clear she's very worried about the kind of witnesses who don't have Secret Service. She specifically referenced that, too. Not every witness who you might be wanting to talk about has uh, protection and has security. 
And what about this January 2nd uh, trial date? The prosecutors, they want a January 2 trial date. Uh, they said they're prepared to, d to turn over that 11.6 million pages of discovery in, boom, first production. They're like, we're ready to go. Um, that does put us like just before Iowa caucuses in New Hampshire. But it seems like they want to get it done, like basically New Year's Day. Happy New Year. Let's get to trial. They clearly they're moving very fast um, or wanting the court to move very fast. And it was kind of interesting today because at one point, Judge Chuck can kind of made a joke uh, in in talking to defense counsel. Like, I can't wait to hear your response uh, next week to the government's request on a trial date, because as they were <laughs> complaining about this and that and the other, I think she was foreseeing they, that they are yeah. definitely not going to be agreeing to January 2nd. So I, I think that is an aggressive schedule. I, I saw the dates that the government laid out. But the fact is they also are turning over huge volumes of discovery and they can say, we've organized it very neatly. We've pointed you to everything yeah. we think is the most important. But defense counsel, they get to decide what, you know, what they think is the most important and they're going to want to look through everything. So I do think that I would do what the government did and make it very well organized and very easy to search and be able to tell the yeah. judge that I did that. But nevertheless, even if it's easy to search, you've got to have the human beings to lay eyes on things. And it's a large volume. So it would not surprise me if that if that slips a bit. Um, but I do think that this judge is not going to put up with shenanigans that that are all about delay, delay, delay. No shenanigans, no tomfoolery is not going down in that court. I can tell just from reading the trend, just from reading the, the, the readout of what happened uh, there today. Okay, Mary McCord is sticking around with me just a little bit longer. Um, and we appreciate her being here because I need someone to help me understand why Republicans who demanded that a special counsel be assigned to the Hunter Biden case are so furious. Now the special counsel has been assigned to the Hunter Biden case. Make it make sense. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. To hear the right tell it, the only story that you should care about is Hunter Biden, the president's son, who has absolutely no role in government. For months, they've used their House majority to relentlessly investigate him. Now, what they've credibly revealed is that public figures and their children trade on their name for access. Shocker. Jared and Ivanka did it. Roger Clinton did it. And so did Hunter Biden. However, that Republican fixation has only resulted in two tangible things. Donald Trump's first impeachment and launching a 2018 Trump Justice Department investigation into Hunter Biden. 
The man in charge of that investigation, David Weiss, has been looking into whether Hunter Biden properly paid his taxes in 2017 and 2018. They were specifically focused on a federal form Hunter Biden filled out when purchasing a gun in 2018. He lied on the form when he claimed that he was not a drug user. He later admitted that he was. Now, to be crystal clear, the special counsel is not investigating the president of the United States. He's investigating his son. But that hasn't stopped Republicans from accusing Hunter Biden of running a corrupt business enterprise flush with foreign cash that also benefited his father. Again, there's nothing inherently illegal about accepting money from foreign interests if you're a private citizen, even if your parent is a famous politician. You do, however, have to pay your taxes on it, which Hunter Biden is accused of not doing. Last month, Hunter Biden and his lawyers agreed to a plea deal for failing to pay taxes and illegal gun possession. But that deal fell apart after a Trump-nominated federal judge refused to accept it. Earlier today, Attorney General Merrick Garland, who's been accused by the right of running a two-tier justice system that only prosecutes conservatives, announced that he was appointing David Weiss special counsel in the Hunter Biden probe. According to Garland, Weiss asked to be appointed to the position and told him that, in his judgment, his investigation has reached a stage at which he should continue his work as a special counsel. So there we are. Mary McCord is back with me. And Mary, I have a couple of questions. Question number one, since when are special counsels appointed for private citizens? Because I just want to read you this. Devin Archer, who's on the board of the Ukrainian company Burisma Holdings, which only people who watch Fox understand what that is. That was the company that Hunter Biden was on the board of as well. When, when Joe Biden was vice president, he testified in front of the committee that wanted to take down Joe Biden, that he's not aware of any wrongdoing by Joe Biden, that he never heard of a $5 million transfer of any transfer to Joe Biden, and that their Ukrainian prosecutor who was fired was not viewed as a threat by the company, and that Hunter Biden was selling the illusion of access to his father, but never sold access to his father. Ergo, Joe Biden is not involved in any of this, nor did he buy an illegal gun, nor was he using drugs. Why is a special counsel investigating Hunter Biden. Well, you know, the special counsel regulations provide that the attorney general may appoint the a special counsel when he concludes that it would be in the public interest. And that's exactly what Merrick Garland did here. And he did it, I think, also because David Weiss asked him to do it. And I think he concluded that because for the same reasons that he had said even before appointing David Weiss as a special counsel, he'd made it clear, Mr. Weiss had made it clear that Mr. Weiss had the ability and authority to operate pretty independently of the of the Department of Justice because I think Mr. Garland recommend, re recognizes the sensitive nature of investigating the son of a president. You're right. He's a private citizen. It's about conduct he took in his, in his private capacity, although there are certainly allegations that he tried to capitalize on his, on his father's, um, you know, position in government to help him uh, win these contracts. That's certainly something that's being discussed and alleged. And so I think this is really one where, where the attorney general said it's in the public interest because we do not want to have any appearance of favoritism toward the president's son. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And until this week, Mr. Weiss had never asked for it. But when Mr. Weiss did ask for it, it really would have been untenable, I think, at that point for the attorney general to say no, because imagine mm -hmm. what would have happened if he had said no. People are on the Hill are hollering right now about appointing David Weiss. Somebody a week, yeah. weeks ago, they said should be appointed. Imagine how they would holler if the attorney general said, no, I'm not going to appoint him. 
So, I mean, in other words, he's he's being treated differently because he's Joe Biden's son. I want to read this little piece here. The particular gun charge that the feds brought against Joe Biden, this is from the Daily Beast, a drug user in possession of a firearm is rarely brought as a standalone crime, especially now that roughly a fifth of the country uses cannabis with an inevitably significant overlap with the nation's estimated 80 million gun owners. There's more than that, I think. When the feds do bring this type of case, they come down hard. But it's usually a tool they use to take down tough to arrest criminals, like militant white nationalists, Islamist terrorists, or narco-traffickers. I think all the evidence that I've seen so far in this case is that Joe, is that Hunter Biden, he could be a terrible guy, I don't know, never met him, is being treated worse than anyone else would be. He's being treated worse the way Donald Trump claims he's being treated worse, but he actually is, because normally this would just be misdemeanor stuff that would be done with. Instead, he's endlessly investigated because of politics. That's my perception. What's yours? Yeah, well, I think with respect to the gun charge, which I don't expect that we'll see again, because we now have a ruling from one of the circuits that that particular offense violates the the Second Amendment after the Supreme Court's ruling last year in in a different case, a Second Amendment case. So I don't think we're going to see that reappear. But to your point, you know, that that charge was part of a negotiated plea agreement. And so, you know, there's lots of factors that go into that. There's a give and take from both sides. It was something that was subject to a diversion agreement, which means he if he complies with certain requirements for the period of two years, I think it was two years in that agreement, there would be no charge. So, you know, I'm not going to say that I think he was treated totally differently because of that. I will say, though, that the very fact that David Weiss was still even the prosecutor, forget the special counsel appointment today, even before that, he was a holdover Trump appointed U.S. attorney. Normally, all of the uh, uh, president's U.S. attorneys resign on January 20th when a new administration comes in. So already there was some special treatment here or different treatment here. And it was all, I think, for political purposes. So it would not appear that the Department of Justice was going to replace, you know, a Republican appointed prosecutor who's investigating the president's son. So politics are definitely a a part of this. But that's, I think, why the attorney general said it's in the public interest to do this. Make him Hunter Joe Slobotnik. He ain't even getting prosecuted. He's doing a diversion program and going home. That's just my opinion. Mary McCord, thank you for staying extra over time. And coming up, the death toll continues to climb. Uh, This is a tough story as searchers dig through the rubble left behind after wildfires tore across the Hawaiian island of Maui. We'll bring you this, bring you the latest next. The search for survivors in Hawaii continues as Maui reels from the devastating wildfires this week. At least 67 people are confirmed dead, with more than 1,000 people missing. NBC's Tom Yamas has the latest. Tonight, the return to Lahaina. Residents allowed back in, and we saw from the skies above the shock that awaits them. Even at 400 feet in the air, you can still smell the smoke days later, and you look down, and you can't make out what you're seeing. It looks to be a town that once existed, but nearly every building, every house, every car scorched completely off the map. Block by block, we see a grid of misery. Once the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom, a tourist mecca, and now a wasteland of ash and rubble. Down there, there's the grim search for bodies happening right now. Those that could not escape. And the residents of Lahaina believe that the death toll is going to be much higher. And officials have warned that they expect to find even more bodies once they start searching building to building, house to house. 
We rode in with Maverick helicopters, usually giving tours, today saving lives. It's just been heartbreaking. It's almost hard to even put into words what we've seen out here. They're choppers carrying thousands of pounds of aid being unloaded by regular Hawaiians looking to help. People are lying dead in the streets out here. Um, hundreds of people are dead. I don't know what's really on the news, what they're saying. It's been terrible to see those images. It's devastating. It's, it's horrible. And they had no warning. It happened so fast. The winds were so strong. New video just in showing the power of the deadly fires, forcing so many to flee into the water, clinging to rocks amid crashing waves and thick smoke. For days, the catastrophic wildfires have burned in Maui, carving a deadly path likely becoming the largest natural disaster in Hawaii's history. Everybody lost everything. We don't know how to feel. I don't know how you guys are supposed to feel. The cause of the fire is still under investigation, and many residents say the flames erupted with almost no warning. My heart is just broken for everyone. Everyone who's lost someone, everyone who doesn't know where someone is. Maui resident Danielle Yakut tells me she can't get in touch with her grandmother. We don't know where she is. Who lived in an assisted living facility. What would you want to tell her? Uh, tell her, I'd, I'd, I'd want to tell her that we're, we're looking for her. Hey, Grandma, we're looking for you. If, if, if you can reach a phone, call us, let us know where you're at, or if anybody can see her, you know, is, is with her, knows who she is. Uh, and just contact us. We just we just want to find some contact to, to get her. National Guard recovery teams are on the ground in Lahaina, working their way through neighborhoods where homes once stood. The full extent of the destruction of Lahaina, it will shock you. It does appear like a bomb and fire went off. Let's go! Already, this is among the most deadly wildfire disasters in the U.S. as the staggering scope of devastation continues to grow. Ooh, uh, NBC's Tom Yamas. Thank you. We'll be right back. I wouldn't sign the pledge. Why would I sign a pledge? There are people on there that I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have certain people as, you know, somebody that I'd endorse. So they want you to sign a pledge. But I can name three or four people that I wouldn't support for president. Surprise, surprise, less than two weeks to go until the first Republican presidential debate of the 2024 campaign season and the twice impeached, thrice indicted former president who still refuses to admit that he lost the 2020 election is now also refusing to sign a pledge to support the Republican nominee if it's not him. Surprise. Joining me now is Teray, creative director at The Grio, host of the Teray Show podcast, as well as the new animated series Star Stories, which seems really amazing. Uh, and Jamel Bowie, New York Times opinion columnist and co-host of the Unclear and Present Danger podcast, uh, whose title is going to make me go to you first. I, I mean, it seems like it doesn't even matter, Jamel, whether he's going to sign this pledge, because I can't see him you know, supporting any of those candidates anyway. If it's not him, he's not going to tell his MAGA followers to vote for that person anyway, right? I think that's right. This is pretty much what happened in 2016. He refused to commit to supporting any other nominee. He refused to commit to accepting the results of the election if he lost, which we know how that played out four years later. Uh, <laughs> Trump's whole, his whole power over the Republican Party at first was this fear among Republican office holders, Republican elites, that if he did not, if he did not stay on his good side and he wasn't the nominee, 
then he would lose, they would lose his voters. And I think he still retains some of that now, that he's not going to make the pledge because, frankly, he doesn't need to. If he isn't the nominee, he still, in his mind, retains quite a bit of, of power to say, no, don't support that person. And that's what Republicans are afraid of. Right. I mean, and to Ray, we talked about a little bit earlier in the show. I mean, Donald Trump's power is that he's a celebrity. And for a lot of his supporters, they're not Republicans, they're his fans. You know, some of them voted for Obama. They're not really Republicans hardcore. They just like him. And so the idea really here is that he's taking this cult and wrapping it around himself because he wants he doesn't want to go to prison. He doesn't care about politics or the Republican Party. And I, I, to me, I don't understand why Republican, elected Republicans are still somehow thinking they can bring him into the fold and have him be a Republican. I mean, this whole exercise of signing this pledge, this is specifically for Trump. This is not something that we've ever seen parties do or even have to do. We always assumed if you came in number two in the primary, you would support the person who came in number one. That has always been the way it's been. So this whole idea is just for Trump. But what it represents, which is part of what Jamel is saying, that the party is really the Trump party. It's not really the Republican party. He has like swallowed it whole. And some of the people <laughs> in his belly are Republicans. Some of them are people who've never voted before and would have never voted Democrat, but typically would stay home, but they'll come out for him. <laughs> and they love him for all sorts of reasons, which media has cataloged endlessly, but they really are talking about him. It is a cult of personality, especially yeah. underlying the word cult. Yeah. I mean, and Jamel, you know who might maybe should sign a pledge and he probably won't? Joe Manchin. He was on the radio saying he doesn't even know if he wants to be, you know, he wants to pull a Christian cinema. A, okay, does anybody really care at this point? Because he's probably going to lose that uh, reelect campaign anyway to the current governor. Or what do you think Democrats ought to think about this? I mean, honestly, as much as it's probably frustrating to a lot of Democrats, I think this is a place where you just kind of like let Joe Manchin do his thing. You, you're right that he is not in a favorable posi position uh, for re-election against the likely Republican nominee, Jim Justice, the current governor. And I think he's looking for any way he can basically to separate himself <laughs> from the National Democratic Party brand and survive in office. And if he feels he needs to be an independent, that's, you know, fine for him. It wouldn't really, I think, alter his actual behavior in Congress all that much. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I'm not sure what, like, what material difference it's going to make, but it may help him stay stay in office a bit, which might matter, right, if it turns out that he wins and it's 50-50 uh, Senate again. Yeah, then he'll just become an oil company executive, which is what he really is anyway. Okay, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I have Teray here because I'm willing to sign a pledge that I am an OG hip hop fan. And I love the fact that women in hip hop are getting this a little moment to, to shine. Uh, Antonia Hilton did a great piece, a uh, big moment to shine. Uh, and Antonia Hilton did a great piece. Let me show a little piece of it. In the tradition of female rappers like Jackie O, Trina, and Missy Elliott, their music is boastful and raunchy. The city girls often encourage women to take advantage of men, a juxtaposition to the men in hip-hop who have long degraded women. They say growing up in poverty in Miami shaped the way they see the world and made both women determined to find financial freedom and control. Produced by the great Stephanie Cargill, Importance of Women in Hip-Hop to Ray. I mean, incredibly important. I mean, women have been part of this conversation of hip hop and like it has been a, a boys club at times and misogynistic extremely at times. But <laughs> women have been an important part throughout hip hop. And 
As you said, women are seeing, uh, having a great moment. Nikki and Cardi are two of the most popular MCs in the game. And there's a large group yeah. of others, um, Koi Leroy and um, Ice Spice and others who are coming up. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of really interesting, Rhapsody, there's a lot of really interesting women uh, doing a lot of interesting work right now. Really important. And the old school people like Queen Latifah, she's now like a bona fide movie and TV star. So look, they're going places. Okay, before I go, I want to invite my amazing guests to stick around to play a quick round of... Oh, you knew we were going to do it. Who won the week? Who won the week? Jamel, who won the week? I have the strangest answer to this. Uh, William Friedkin, who passed away this week, but that's not why he won. Uh, he won because his passing has prompted people to really reappraise and reevaluate and 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 look back at his career. And all, all the people know his big hits, The Exorcist uh, and The French Connection. He had a long career afterwards with films like Sorcerer and To Live and Die in Los Angeles, which are phenomenal films that I think people are paying more attention to and revisiting and talking about and thinking about and watching, which I think is is great. It's a great thing for, um, for the, the late director and for just people who care about movies. So William Friedman. Yeah. Especially during the writer strike and, and recognizing the artistry of great directors and The Exorcist is one of the greatest movies of all time. All right, Teray, who, in your view, won the week? Joy, is there any other story we've been talking about all week? Everybody black in Montgomery won the week, but especially the swimmer, the 16-year-old yes. who got out of the boat because that's what he was taught to do. He was taught to come to the aid of his brothers and sisters when they are in need. And those of us who are parents seeing that like, ah, oh, he listened, he learned, he feels the communal aspect of Blackness. We yes. love that. I'm proud to see yes. all those folks rise up and fight back. Well, I actually have an interview for my Who Won the Week that is along those same lines because the hat man was amazing. The swimmer was amazing. All the brothers that marched in uh, in, in the defense of the hat man. But here is my Who Won the Week. It is the Freedom Chair. Freedom Chair. I think we have an exclusive interview with the Freedom Chair. Let us go to the Freedom Chair now. Freedom Chair, are you here? There he is. All right, Freedom Chair, please tell us. We know you were invented by a black man, by an African-American. Your thoughts on winning the week and on all that went down in Montgomery. Tell us. Oh, oh, okay, I get it. Oh, you don't want to say nothing because you're trying to keep it all, you're trying to keep it low. I get it. I respect that freedom chair. The freedom chair won the week. Uh, and that's it. The freedom chair won the week. And there he is. Teray and Jamel Bowie, thank you all very much. And thank you, Freedom Chair. We know you had to keep it quiet today, but we understand. That is tonight's readout. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.